We're really thankful to be back in town and back here with you at Redeemer, and it's exciting every time we come back to see the growth in the gospel that's taking place here, to see uh, new members and new faces, and to see old familiar faces too, to see children receiving baptism, to hear about the continuing partnership with Uganda, and to see all that God is doing through the music ministry and the growth and leadership. Uh, we're very thankful and excited to be back with you. And I'm also sincerely excited and glad that when I texted Craig to let him know that we were on vacation and that I just wanted to get together and see him, he understood that to mean that I would preach for him today. So <laughs> thank you, Craig, for the opportunity. I, I am truly excited to, to bring you God's Word today. Our passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, if you're using your pew Bible, that can be found on page 815. And we'll be reading chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. This is God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us the the understanding by grace to to receive your word and to then live it out. And I pray that uh, you would work through me, that you would humble me under this text, that you would humble all of us, and yet give us confidence in its truth, that we would see Jesus and all that he is and has done for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Reminders are necessary and crucial to live life well. Reminders. We are all, by nature, some of us, like me, much more than others, forgetful people. And so we need reminders every day. We need a grocery list to remember what we need to buy at the store. Uh, We need a calendar to remind us of important dates. You need a planner to remind you of upcoming appointments. Uh, An alarm on your phone to remind you that it's trash day. My wife's phone wallet keys right before I head out the door for the day to remind me what I need. Uh, Whatever it is, all of us need reminders on a daily basis because all of us are forgetful to some degree or another. And if you think about it, the more important the issue, the more urgent the reminder needs to be. So your anniversary, for instance, might get circled on the calendar and underlined and bold and highlighted, whatever you need to do to remember. 
uh, an important meeting would get highlighted in your planner. And if you missed trash day the week before, then you do three or four exclamation points this week to make sure you get it out to the curb this week. The more uh, important the issue, the more urgent and crucial the reminder becomes. And in this passage this morning from 1 Corinthians, we have the most urgent of all reminders because it concerns the most important issue in life, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We learn from this passage that we as believers, we're forgetful when it comes to the gospel, are we not? We're forgetful when it comes to the good news, to the message of salvation, And I'm not speaking primarily of an intellectual forgetfulness as if somehow we forget the content of the gospel. No, I'm speaking of a practical forgetfulness. You may know the content of the gospel, but it's not shaping your everyday thinking and and living and speaking. Uh, You may know the the content of the gospel, but you've forgotten its power. Uh, You've forgotten its reality. You've forgotten its hope. For your life. And so, as believers, we need to be constantly and urgently reminded of the gospel. And that's what this passage does for us. And that's why we're here this morning, is it not? To be reminded. So, let's be reminded. And we'll take this passage under three headings. First, uh, you need to be reminded of the present saving power of the gospel. The present saving power of the gospel. Second, you need to be reminded of the past historical reality of the gospel. And then finally, you need to be reminded of the future glorious hope of the gospel. So present, present, past, future. Present saving power, past historical reality, future hope. So first, let's look at being reminded of the present saving power of the gospel in the life of a believer Look, if you look at verse 1, who's Paul writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to brothers and sisters, to believers, and he wants to remind believers, you and me, who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, to remind us of the most important thing, to remind us of the gospel. And I want us to look in particular at the tense of these verbs, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, past tense, Paul proclaimed the message of the gospel to the Corinthian church, which you received, past tense, the Corinthians believed the message, in which you stand and by which you are saved or being saved. Present tense. So Paul preached the message, past tense, they received it and believed, past tense, and then that gospel is the thing by which the Corinthian church and you as a believer in Christ are being saved, present tense. Now you may say, wait a second, I I thought that I was saved through the gospel and now I live in response to God having saved me, and yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, The Bible speaks of salvation that way. The Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, past tense. 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Lord saved us, past tense, and called us to a holy calling. Titus 3, he saved us, past tense, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy. But here we see Paul saying that the gospel is that by which you are saved or are being saved, present tense. So yes, we are saved by the gospel and then we live in, the, in response, but at the same time, Paul tells us we are being saved by the power of the gospel. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as well. The word of the cross, the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there it is. There's a present saving power to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so how does this work out? Well, this, this may be sort of abstract, and it's certainly an oversimplification, but I think it is helpful. Theologians have often put it this way, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, we are being saved from the power of sin, and then one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And we spoke of that in our call to worship, revelation, the holy city coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We call this the doctrine of justification, that God looks at us through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and our sin was put on Christ, and his righteousness was put on us, covering over us, and God says, I see you as I see my son, perfectly holy and righteous. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, justification. We are being saved from the power of sin. You could call this the doctrine of sanctification. We're growing in holiness. We're dying to sin and living to righteousness. And then one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. You could call this the doctrine of glorification. That we and the world along with us, a new world, will be made sinless and perfect when Jesus comes again. Well, that's all very neat and tidy. Uh, But what difference does that theology make for living the Christian life? Why do we have to be reminded of the power of the gospel? This is one reason. I think when we say, I've been saved, and so now I'm called to live in response, that's absolutely true. But sometimes how we can work that out in our sin is that we start thinking, well, God has done his part Now it's up to me to do my part. Oh, with the Holy Spirit's help, of course, but now it's up to me. But if what Paul is saying here is true, you have been saved, you are being saved, then God has done his part and God continues to do his part. It's all of God from start to finish. Our salvation from the beginning, when we profess faith in Jesus Christ in the beginning, then when we cling to him by faith in our daily life until we get To the end, when he comes again, all of that is God's work from start to finish. Otherwise, how could salvation be by grace alone? Our Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live Unto righteousness. So, sanctification, our growth in holiness, is by grace. It's in response to God's grace and it's fueled and empowered itself by God's grace. Grace, by definition, is what? It's a gift. 
And a gift is not something that you pay for. A gift is not something that you earn. A gift is not something that you deserve. It's something you simply receive. It's God's doing. Now you might ask, well, if my growth in Christ, becoming more like him, growing in holiness is all by God's grace, what about my responsibility to obey? Am I not commanded to obey? Well, of course. Of course, we're called to make every effort to pursue holiness. We see that even in these verses where Paul says, you need to hold fast to the word. He's commanding us to do that. Of course, we have responsibility to seek after God and to grow and become more like Christ. But then can it be by grace? Well, yes. So I have responsibility. Yes. But it's God who's doing it. Yes. Well, how does that work out? Because this is all through the Bible. Let me show you a couple more passages. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work. There it is. Work out your salvation. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice Paul says, you work. Why? Because God is working. Well, which is it? Well, it's both. You work and God is at work in you. That's the biblical language, God working in you. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Did you hear it? Paul says, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. It's all up to God. But then he goes on to say, the life I now live. Well, which is it? He says, I no longer live. And then he says, I live. Well, it's both. Christ is living in you, and then we live out of Christ. Christ living in me, God working in me. The gospel has saved me, and it is now saving me. Well, that's, that's abstract theology. Let's go to a story. It's not just the New Testament. It's not just Paul. It's all through the Bible. Going back to the Old Testament. Uh, think about the Exodus from Egypt, of Israel. Uh, God's people, Israel, they're, they're slaves. They're horribly oppressed under Pharaoh. And they cry out for mercy. And God hears their cry. And God saved his people. Right? He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He brought them out from slavery. He, he took them out of bondage, never to go back to Egypt. He saved them. Past tense. And they rejoice. They sing. They dance. They're on their way to the promised land. And then what happens to the Israelites once they're out? They face hardships on the way. Pharaoh regrets letting them go and chases after them at the Red Sea. In the desert, they have no food and no water, and they're hungry and thirsty. And what do we find them saying to Moses? We're trusting God to provide. He's the one who brought us out. He can bring us through this wilderness. No. What did they say to Moses? Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. They didn't say that. They're forgetting. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. That's not what it was like at all. They were slaves. 
They're forgetting the reality of God's salvation. They're not thinking clearly. They're not living out the reality of being saved by their Redeemer. They've been taken out of slavery, but you see, they want to go back. They've been taken out of bondage, but they want to go back. And isn't that what it's like for us, too? We've been saved from sin. We've been taken out of sin, but the sin has not yet been taken out of us completely. And we forget. We lose our perspective. We don't think clearly. Uh, We don't live in light of all that God has done for us and his power and his grace. We want to go back to bondage. We want to go back to chains. And this is why it's so important. Thankfully, God has not only saved us and brought us out, he is saving us from the hold that sin still has in our lives. He's taking the sin out of us. And so what does this mean? Back to the Apostle Paul, uh, to one more passage that fleshes this out more than, than any other, about what it means for the gospel to be that by which we are being saved. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, If we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And here it is. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There it is. The gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ saves us not only from the penalty of sin, but from its power, its dominion over us. And so then we live that out. Don't let sin reign in your body to make you obey its passions, but present yourselves to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. You see that? God has saved us, and he's saving us through and through. The gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ frees us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its power over us. So not only did Christ die for you, you died with Christ. Not only did Christ rise for you, but you rose with Christ. So you have a new life. You have a new motivation. You have a new will. And by the Holy Spirit, this resurrection power of Christ that we, we celebrated so abundantly last Sunday, it's not just one Sunday of the year. That, that resurrection power that took Jesus up from the grave lives in you by the Holy Spirit. And so not only can we say no to sin, we can say yes to righteousness by the power of what God is doing in us. And so let's get specific, okay? Because Paul does in his letter to the Colossians, if you have died and been raised with Christ, what's our response? What's the gospel power working and living in us? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, lies, obscene talk from your mouth. Is there anybody in this room, if you were listening to that list, who's exempt from those? Of course not. There's, there's not one person in this room that that list does not indict a hundred, a thousand times over, myself more than anyone. But not only does Jesus Christ in the gospel say, I've saved you from the punishment of all those sins. I took your impurity on myself on the cross, and I paid for it, and I've given you my purity. 
I've taken your anger on myself on the cross, and I've paid for it, and I've given you my gentleness and my humility. Not only has, does the gospel say that, it says, I'm saving you from the hold that these things have on your life. I'm saving you from the bondage that these sins still have on you when you want to go back to chains. Because my resurrection power is working in you, living in you now to keep you from wanting to go back, to move you out of sexual sin and into purity, to move you out of lies and into truth-telling, to move you out of jealousy and into appreciation for the gifts of others, to move you out of anger and into gentleness, to move you out of obscenity and into pleasantness and life-giving words, to put on as Paul goes on to say, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, loving and forgiving one another. So think about what that means. It means that if one of these does have a hold on you right now, whether it's sexual sin or anger or envy and jealousy, lying, gossip, Whatever it may be, in the gospel, there's forgiveness and there is cleansing. But there's also hope for change, to move out of those things. There's power uh, to, be, to be changed and to be transformed because God is saving you from the power of these sins over you. And think about how this can change your thinking and your living. Think about what this reminder can do. Because if it's simply, well, uh, now it's up to me. I've got to do my part. Well, what's going to happen? Well, You'll either be puffed up and you'll feel good about yourself when you think you're doing well. And to think that you're doing well, what do you have to do? You have to compare yourself to other people around you and say, well, I'm doing a lot better than that guy. Or, on the other hand, what will happen? You'll be despondent. You'll be crushed. You'll be in despair when you fail. And you feel like you're never measuring up. And if you're anything like me, you swing on a pendulum between those two. Um, doing things pretty well right now. I'm looking pretty good. Or, oh, I'm not measuring up. Oh, my goodness. You just back and forth and back and forth. But what if the gospel is that by which you are being saved? What if it's God working in you? What if it's Christ living in you? What if it's the fruit of the Spirit? Then there's peace. There's assurance. There's confidence because you know that it's not up to you. It's up to God. But there's also confidence to to take responsibility because you know he's at work and he's going to complete the good work begun in you. Early in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Christ has become everything for us, our righteousness and our sanctification. And Jesus himself said as much, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. It really then is a work of God's free grace. This is the present power of the gospel in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. And you need to be reminded. You need to find ways to remind yourself. You need to be saturated in God's Word, uh, reading it personally so you can have it in your heart that you might not sin against Him. Uh, You need the discipline of the reading plan, uh, the the post-it notes on the mirror, the the index card you can pull out of your pocket at work, 
Uh, you need the music on, the, on your way to work. Whatever it is to remind you of these truths and to remind you of the power of the gospel at work in you. You need to find ways to remind yourself. But the nature of forgetfulness is what? That we often can't or don't even want to remind ourselves. We're like the Israelites. Leave us alone. Let me go serve the Egyptians. I'm happy over here. We need others reminding us. You need reminders from a friend who meets with you every week. You need texts. You need uh, uh, the accountability of a small group. And this is why we meet together on Sunday mornings, uh, every single one of which is Resurrection Sunday, uh, through praise, through prayers, through the preaching and teaching of the Word, through seeing the sacraments, through our fellowship together, reminding each other of the gospel and of its power. But this power of the gospel is not uh, simply a religious symbol or a metaphor or a spiritual concept or a set of principles. The gospel is only powerful to save and transform us now because these things actually took place in real time, space, and history. And we've already been doing this to some extent, but you need to be reminded of the saving power of the gospel and also of the past historical reality of the gospel. And that's what Paul does for us here in 1 Corinthians. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it is. This took place in real time, space, history, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So again, it's not just a metaphor. It's not just a spiritual concept, a, a set of principles, or a, or a way to, to improve your life, a, a profound religious experience. No, gospel means what? Good news. It's news. It's a message that's delivered and received. It's a historical pronouncement. It's a proclamation that something good has happened in real time, space, history. It's according to the scriptures. In other words, it's been predicted in the Old Testament through prophecy and through events and through people who looked forward to the coming of Messiah, the coming of Messiah to earth, this earth, this physical world that we live in at a particular time in history. That's why it's so important that Paul says he rose again on the third day. It's a specific time. And, and this is why Christianity among all other religions, among all other belief systems. It's unique. This is why the gospel can't be confined to the category of, of take it or leave it, or uh, that, that's fine for you, but that's not what I believe, or as long as you keep it in the privacy of your own home. It can't stay there because Christianity hangs on not on spiritual or moral principles, but on real, on the ground, first century Jewish history. Here's the historical content of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried in a tomb. He rose again bodily three days later. And if this didn't happen, there's no Christianity. Paul will go on to say, if Christ is not risen, your faith is useless. It's in vain. You're still in your sins. Eat, drink, and, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't sound too bad to me, does it? But Christ is risen, so we can't go there. It's real history. And so we need to be reminded of the history. You may be here this morning, and you may have never looked at the history. 
You may never have considered it. And if you haven't, you need to. You can't just shrug it off. At least consider it. Have you considered that the best explanation for the historical facts may be that Jesus actually rose again from the dead in the body? We see here that Paul goes on to give eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Four times he says Jesus appeared to various people after his bodily resurrection from the dead. What's Paul doing? He's listing the eyewitnesses. He appeared to Peter and the other apostles. And then in verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. All the scholars, liberal, conservative, wherever they are on the spectrum, all of them agree that this is written only 20 years after the events of Jesus' life. It's just 20 years after. So what's Paul doing? He, he, essentially, he's saying, look, The risen Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time, and most of them are still alive. Go ask them for yourself. He couldn't have made such a public statement had there not really been eyewitnesses, that they were all testifying that they had seen Jesus. The best explanation is what? That it actually happened. And and only if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened can you explain the church's belief that he rose again from the dead. Sometimes, uh, we, we have an implicit, I do, I know I do, or maybe even explicit idea that ancient people, well, they were, they were kind of naive, they were, they were superstitious. Uh, they might believe that someone was raised from the dead, but, but we modern, advanced, uh, technological, enlightened, scientific people, uh, we've moved beyond those primitive beliefs and superstitions. That's just, there's no other way to put it, that's just arrogant, It's not just modern people who had trouble with the resurrection. It was the ancient peoples as well. The idea of one person being raised from the dead, it was just as foreign to them as it is to us. It was just as unbelievable to ancient people as it was to us. The Greeks, they believed in the afterlife, uh, but they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. To the Greeks, the the material world was evil. Salvation was the soul escaping the body. And uh, the Jews at that time, though not all of them, Most of them believed in the bodily resurrection, but only in the last day. So where would this belief, this unique belief that one person, Jesus, here in the first century rose from the dead, where would that belief come from? The best explanation is that it actually happened. And only if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened can you explain the existence of the early church and of Christianity at all. Only if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened can you explain why we're here on Sunday, April 23rd in Charleston, South Carolina at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Think of the disciples after the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. They're devastated. They're despondent. They're they're crushed. They're, they're, They're cowering in a room together, wondering what's happened. And then all of a sudden, Immediately, they begin boldly telling everyone that Jesus has risen from the dead. Hundreds of eyewitnesses are there to corroborate their testimony. Ancient skeptics, they could have refuted them by producing the corpse, but they couldn't. And then people begin worshiping Jesus as Lord, just as we worshiped here this morning, saying, Hail the Lamb of God. Then these early Christians are willing to sacrifice their very lives on that belief. And Christianity explodes. What can account for this? Again, the best explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead in history. In the first century, the city of Jerusalem, Jesus 
of Nazareth died on a cross. On the cross, he took the punishment for the sins of his people, defeating the hold that sin had on them. He was buried in a tomb. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, confirming that the price for our sins was paid, securing the victory, and then he appeared bodily to these eyewitnesses. This is real history, which requires of a response. It can't be ignored. It can't be shrugged off. At least consider it. At least know what you're rejecting before you reject it. And then if you find that it is true, the only response is the same as these early Christians, to repent, to believe, and to give your life over in worship of Jesus. You need to be reminded of the present power of the gospel, grounded in the historical reality of the gospel, which gives us hope. And here's the future. Lastly, and briefly, you need to be reminded of the future glorious hope of the gospel, that one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. You see, Paul is addressing a specific problem in the church in Corinth. And it seems that the Corinthians, without necessarily denying Jesus' resurrection, were nonetheless denying the resurrection from the dead. Uh, They had been influenced by this dualism of the Greeks, this view that said the spiritual world was good and the the physical world is bad, and so salvation is to escape and to be released from the prison of the body. And much of the church today has been influenced by this as well. But I love this about the Bible, and this is something I want to teach to my little girl, my nine-month-old, and I've had so much fun doing it, that, that God has created this world good. God has created the material world and called it good. And we see that salvation is not for the soul to escape the body, but for the body and soul together to be made whole. And and the Corinthian church, influenced by the culture around them, they were forgetting this. They needed to be reminded. And we need to be reminded, too, that if Jesus rose from the dead, then we, too, will be raised. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our glorious resurrection in the last day. The resurrection of Christ, it's inextricably tied to our own future resurrection. There's not one without the other. So Paul goes on to say, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see what he's doing. If Christ has been raised, we will be raised. If he wasn't, we won't. They both go together. He uses the metaphor of first fruits. It's an agricultural, a farming metaphor. Uh, the Israelites at the beginning of harvest, they, they gave God the first fruits, the, the beginning of the harvest, and, and that offering guaranteed that the rest of the harvest was going to come in. And that's what Christ is for us. He's the guarantee that one day we too will be raised. He's the first fruits, and so the rest of the harvest will be gathered in the last day. So salvation is not simply if you trust in Jesus when you die, you'll go to heaven. That, of course, is wonderfully true. It's wonderfully true. But salvation is resurrection. Not the soul escaping the body, but the body and the soul being renewed. Not escaping the world, but one day to live in a new world, a renewed world. A new heaven and a new earth. And this this reminder, it changes the way that we think and we live. On the one hand... We can celebrate the goodness of this world that God has given us. We can enjoy a wonderful meal, and we've enjoyed probably a few too many of those this week. A a walk on the beach, a a beautiful concert, play sports, lift weights, practice medicine, tend the garden, 
uh, whatever your work is, to recognize that whatever God has called you to do, that has value and can be established for eternity. As a church, that we meet uh, physical and spiritual needs to minister to others in word and deed, just as Jesus did. We can celebrate the goodness of this world, but on the other hand, the future glorious hope of resurrection also reminds us that though one day our bodies will be renewed, they're broken right now, and they're fading away. Though, though the world itself will one day be renewed, it is in many ways a broken and a horrible place, and we all face the reality of suffering, some of you much more than others. Now, we all face the reality of death. Some of us are closer than others, but none of us really know, do we? But because Christ has been raised, for all who are in him, though death is an enemy, it's awful. For the believer, it simply leads to more life. One of my teachers once put it this way, death becomes a doorman, tipping his hat as we go in. Let's close as Paul does in this chapter in verse 51, and you can look there with me if you like. Verse 51 of chapter 15. Here's our hope. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ the Lord is risen today. We sing this hymn every year at Easter, and I've always thought it's a little unfortunate that, that as special as that is, we only sing this incredible hymn, this text of Charles Wesley's only once a year. And so we're going to sing it again this morning because this hymn reminds us that, yes, Christ did rise on that first Easter morning. That's the historical reality. Uh, it, but it also reminds us that if you're in him, you will be raised. That's the hope. But again, it also reminds us that Christ the Lord is risen today, that if you're in him, if he lives in you, working in you, he's saving you and bringing you to that day. That's the present saving power of the gospel. So let's remind ourselves through this hymn. Let's keep reminding each other through the week uh, as we close. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this thing of most importance. Remind us help each other to remind one another and ourselves that Christ is risen, that he is risen indeed, that he is the power at work within us, that he is our life, that he is our joy, that he is our hope. Keep reminding us this week in practical ways. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand.